Hello everyone, and welcome to After Alexander. Episode 42, New Arrivals. Last time, we discussed the eventual independence of the Greco-Bactrian Kingdom, although when and how this took place is not settled. However, we also introduced a group who will become the second great power of the post-Hellenistic world in the West, the Parthians. The Parthians will go on to create an empire which will last until the 220 CE. In point of fact, the Parthian Empire will fall in 226, although Volagarsis VI will create currency for another two years until 228. As such, it's worth giving them a proper introduction. First of all, who were the Parthians? Also known as the Parni or the Aparni, they were one of the three groups making up a confederation called the Dahe. These tribes were either fully or partially nomadic, and Strabo reported that they lived to the southeast of the Caspian Sea. The Dahe lived in Central Asia between the watershed of the Amu Darya, which is another name for our old friend the Oxus we've encountered a few times before, and the Caspian. Burial customs in southern Turkmenistan align with those people groups living in a region called Sarikamish, as well as those in Khorasmia and Transoxiana. Furthermore, there are elements that are analogous to those of people in the southern Ural Mountains. As such, it has been concluded that the Dahe sprang from a large assembly of different people groups in the land stretching from the southern Ural Mountains to the Sirdaria, also called the Jaxartes in antiquity. Whether or not the Dahe had a capital, and what it would have been called if they did, is not known. The Dahe are likely to have venerated the sun. Further down the chronological line, the Parthians had a fondness for a god called Mithra, especially in what is known as his solar aspect. Now, the Parthians, and indeed the larger Dahe, do crop up a few times in the earlier part of our story. When the Achaemenid Empire was falling between 331 and 330 BCE, the Parthians supported the Achaemenid Persians. Alexander came across them while fighting in Bactria, and historians praised their nimble nature and horsemanship. The Dahe, along with their relatives in the form of the Masagite, were imported in the forces of Spitamenes, who maintained changes to the army instituted by Darius III in the period between Issus and Gorgamela, or between 333 and 331 BCE, which we'll get to in a moment, and who fought against the Macedonians in both Bactria and Sogdia. The military reorganisation of Darius III mentioned above saw the creation of cavalry where both the horse and the rider were armoured and were equipped with Macedonian-style lances. These units mostly consisted of Masagite, with some Bactrians, Arachosians and Sogdians. Spitamenes would use the best qualities of many types of mounted warrior in his fight against Alexander, including heavy cavalry. If the name Sogdia sounds familiar, that's because Spitamenes is the father of Apama, the woman who married Seleucus I and became a progenitor of the Seleucid dynasty. If you're interested in the family tree side of things, this makes Spitamenes the great-grandfather of our current monarch, Antiochus II. But back to the point. 
skipping around in time a bit, Eastern Iranian cavalry, which Parthian units were a part of, have been noted as some of the forces which were crucial in the Battle of Gorgamela on the 1st of October 331 BCE. As we haven't really talked about Gorgamela, let's touch on it now, focusing more on the role of the cavalry. It was part of Alexander's conquest of the Achaemenid Empire, and by this point in 331 BCE he had already arrived in the Middle East. The battle site itself was to the east of both the Tigris and the Euphrates. In the battle, the cavalry of the Persians would unsuccessfully try to get around Alexander's right wing, barring a few of their number who got past, only to be pitted against Macedonian forces behind the first line. This advance left a hole between the mounted troops and the rest of the Persian forces, which Alexander's companion cavalry and troops following behind them would exploit to great effect. Bessus, the leader of the Persians fighting against Alexander's right, started withdrawing to avoid being isolated, thereby decreasing the pressure on their Macedonian opponents. Some Persians did get through the Macedonian lines, but instead of exploiting this, they fell on Alexander's supplies and were soon chased off by the rearguard. Elsewhere, the Emperor Darius III, who was present in the battle, also fled. Alexander thought about giving chase, but an urgent message from another commander meant he changed his mind, deciding not to risk his army for the chance of ending the war by Darius's death. During this time, Alexander's other wing had been following the Macedonian strategy, which had called for these men, led by Parmenion, to simply hold the line while Alexander, Al while Alexander defeated the Persian left, a strategy which had been helped along by the separation of Persian troops we mentioned earlier. At this point in the battle, Parmenion's wing had successfully kept the Persians occupied, but was under pressure, being surrounded and disordered. With Alexander now freed up, he was able to come to the rescue and push the Persians under Mazaeus back. Persian order broke down, and Gorgamela was a victory for Alexander. Bear in mind that I haven't discussed every aspect of the battle here, as it's only of tangential relevance for our purposes today. This is because the Parthians were present at the battle, being part of the wing under Mazaeus. After the death of Alexander in 323 BCE, the mounted archers of the Parthians became renowned mercenary forces. The style of heavily armoured horsemen brought in by Darius III and employed by Spitamenes was not implemented in the new Macedonian Empire. As such, this form of heavy cavalry would arise in territories which were not part of the Hellenistic world and on the edges of some of the regions we've already discussed, including the lands of both the Dahe and the Masagite. These same groups were also the best at fighting with a bow on horseback, and in fact, Alexander had used them in his own forces. The style of fighting involving both horse archers and heavier cavalry used by Spitamenes has been noted in my sources as the predecessor to the tactics of the Parthians. With regard to these archers, there is a theory that the cavalry and archery traditions of the Parthians sprung from the Achaemenid Persians. After all, both of these traditions had been present in Median and Persian culture. However, there are differences separating the practices of these cultures from that of the Parthians. Specifically, the former two societies had spear-wielding infantry. Case in point, the Persians had the Immortals, the 10,000 guards of the Persian sovereign himself, 
which formed a central component of their armed forces. By contrast, there was no infantry in the Parthian army. To fight in the style of an infantryman would have been seen as beneath the ruler of the Parthians, which contrasts with Darius I of the Persians boasting about his aptitude in this same area. However, despite all of these events before our story really started, it's only at this point in the podcast narrative that the Parthians are really going to start coming into the picture. Their decisive entry onto the Hellenistic stage in a few years' time requires the introduction of a new man, Arsaces I. The Parthians, and the Dahe more generally, elected rulers from among the ruling family. It was through such an election that Arsaces became the ruler of the Parni. I'm going to do something a little different at this point in the episode, and head forwards in time a little bit, in order to cover the story of the Parthians a bit more fully. To do this, we're going to need to introduce a figure from the Hellenistic world who will appear in our story again in the future, called Andragoras. Andragoras was the satrap of Parthia, where Seleucid authority was tenuous. In 247 BCE, he declared his independence. This was because of the chaos of the Third Syrian War, which, yes, is coming up in the not-too-distant future for reasons we won't go into today. Accordingly, the future of the Seleucid Empire hung in the balance for a little while. I'm going to avoid talking about the specifics of why this was the case, as we will cover it in time when we get to the war itself. The only relevant detail for our purposes today is that Andragoras declared independence from his Seleucid overlords. I should mention that I've seen the dates vary a bit between sources, and the independence of the satrapy has been listed in one of my sources as 245 BCE. Regardless, Andragoras faced a struggle trying to maintain the frontiers, given that the Seleucids were now no longer defending them. In approximately 238 BCE, Arsaces and his brother Tiridates invaded the satrapy. Rather than simply raiding, Arsaces arrived with the aim of establishing a kingdom. Parallels have been drawn between the Parthians and the Seljuks, who also started out as a nomadic people group and gained knowledge of settled people when they were hiring their services out as soldiers. They first took the northern section of Astabini, an event which marks the start of the Parthian calendar, similar to the Seleucid calendar which we discussed all the way back in episode 18. The Parthians would subsequently take over the remainder of Parthia, and then Hyacania. Artaxes I was coronated in the city of Asarch, and every subsequent king of the Parthian Empire would take his name. Volagarses VI, who I mentioned at the start of this episode, was thus Artaxes XLVIII, and the final monarch of the dynasty, although not the last one chronologically, was his brother Artaxes XV, also known as Tiridates IV but all of that is for a later point in history. Bear in mind that I've seen the date for when the Parthians established themselves vary a little bit between sources. For example, one source mentions 253 BCE as the year when the Arsacid dynasty came to prominence, others give 250 or 247 BCE as the beginning of the reign of Arsaces I, and I have seen the coronation at Asark listed as happening before the conquest of Parthia, Equally, it has been noted that other ruling families in the region, such as the Sassanids, have begun their year count from the point when they rose to prominence as opposed to the first coronation of the dynasty, 
So the Parthian calendar beginning in 247 BCE doesn't have to indicate that this was when Arsaces' coronation took place. The Parthian conquest has been noted as the first point in history when nomadic peoples from the Asian steppes took control of part of Iran. This phenomenon will crop up again in later centuries, with two examples being the Seljuks who we mentioned earlier and the Hephthalites further to the east. For some context, the Seljuk Turks conquered the west of the Ghaznavid Empire in the early 11th century, and went on to take over Armenia, Syria and Anatolia, after having defeated the Eastern Roman Empire at the Battle of Manzikert, leaving Anatolia open. The Hephthalites, meanwhile, took over parts of the Sassanid Empire in the 400s CE. So, that's the Parthians. As you may have gathered from today's episode, this is the first time they've been introduced, but it will not be the last time they're mentioned. However, next time we will adjust our focus once again. Specifically, we will be examining some of the interdynastic marriage ties we haven't really had time to cover so far. Along the way, we will have the opportunity to re-examine Anatolia and bring the Antigonids back into the narrative. Until then, thank you all for listening. For any questions or comments, feel free to get in touch at the show's email address. Until next time, have a great week everyone.